This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. I hope you had a wonderful Easter season, and we are returning now to wrap up the book of Colossians across the next three Sundays. As is almost always the case, you can find today's message outline in my notes on the Beaver Creek tab of TrinityVale.com. But before we jump in, today is Sunday, April the 16th. This is Pastor Ethan, and thank you so much for joining with me. Okay, friends, before we get to our text today, I want us to zoom out a bit and spend just a minute considering how we consider Scripture. Right, the idea of how we approach, how we understand Scripture, particularly for our case today, when what we are reading in the Bible doesn't seem relevant to us. Right, we read it and we say, this just seems out of sync with our time or culture, the way that we think about things. You know, a few weeks ago, we saw how about halfway through Colossians chapter 3, Paul shifted from a more theological focus on who Christ is, right, what is true of us in Christ, to a more ethical focus. Because of these things about Jesus and the church are true, well, then how shall we live? And we see this in virtually all of Paul's letters. Right? They follow this general pattern. Right? Sometimes it goes back and forth a bit, but moving from an in-depth theological truth, right, truths, to the ethical outworking of those truths. And friends, there are times when we get to these more ethical passages that we may read something and think, again, I'm just struggling with how what I read relates to life today. Okay, well, let me give you an example of this, an easy example. And this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4. And here Paul says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered well dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. And then a little later in that same passage, Paul says, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, that's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. And we read this and we think about our lives today and we're like, what? I mean, what do we do with this? Do we take it literally? And all you ladies who aren't wearing hats and who don't have long hair are dishonoring both yourself and God. And guys, if, we're, if our haircut's not high and tight, are we, are we dishonoring God? And some people will take the scripture that way, even today. You know, but most sincere believers will read this and think, you know, there's got to be a cultural context going on here. Right? We need to get to the bigger, deeper principle, whatever that may be. And I would agree. But friends, this can be hard to do. We struggle often with applying these contextual lens consistently, even though they are highly important. And it's an easy temptation for us to apply these contextual lenses, um, you know, when it helps us reinforce what we already think, and then ignore them when it doesn't reinforce what we think, or vice versa. You know, growing up in the Baptist tradition, um, we would often say that we have a very high view of Scripture meaning we took Scripture seriously, and at least most of the time, very literally. You know, at a fairly young age, I learned to say something like, you know, Scripture is inspired, infallible, and inerrant, without any mixture of error. Right? That was kind of our, our, our banner statement we would make. 
And now, friends, hear me. That is what that can be good. The problem, though, arises when this genuine high view of Scripture might actually lead us astray because we're so focused with this interpretive magnifying glass on the text that we don't consider the crucial lenses of context and in the process miss the principles of the word. Okay, let's go back to this example of head coverings. Now, requiring women to cover their heads was nothing distinctive for the early church. This was the cultural norm of their surrounding society, right? It was a practice that dated back as early as the 13th century BC, where we have ancient Assyrian texts mandating head coverings for respectable women. But if you were a woman of lower class or even a prostitute, then it was forbidden. Basically, the head covering symbolized a woman's piety and social acceptability. And of course, we see this in some cultures, you know, up in, in the world today. So, when Paul taught women to cover their heads, he was not pushing against the surrounding culture. He was conforming with the surrounding culture. Well, why would he do that? My friends, the answer is for the sake of the gospel. You see, for Christian women to rebel against that, com that common cultural norm would have been very controversial and could have detracted from the church's greater calling to be bearers of the good news of Christ. Now, with this in mind, then, right, think of this. You could make a strong argument that if the church required women in today's American culture to wear a head covering during worship, Right? While this might be literally obedient to the text, it would actually be in opposition to the intent of the text, to the principles of the word, which is for the way that we dress and comport ourselves to not be a distraction to the message of the gospel. Okay, Now, of course, this idea could be distorted if our purpose is just to make Scripture say what we want it to say. So, by the Spirit, with honesty and integrity of heart before God, what we need to do is to seek to balance the literal meaning of the text within its original context with the timeless principles of God's word to all the church for all time, meaning to us. If you look throughout the New Testament, we see Paul speak to this multiple times. Right? One example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Right? I'm quoting from 1 Corinthians a lot. Right? Go through 1 and 2 Corinthians, you see lots of examples of this. But anyway, in 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 12, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 20 through 23. And Paul says, he says, listen, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Right? Think about that phrase. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. And then Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Okay, Paul is saying, I am putting restrictions on myself. I am taking on cultural attributes, cultural norms that I otherwise would not do. Right? Well, why? And then in verse 23, he says, I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. For the sake of the gospel. And friends, this leads us to one of the, um, one of the multiple very important contextual considerations 
that we need to consider as we go through the New Testament, as we go through Scripture. And it's this. It was the reality of life as it really was then, right, compared to the score in the corresponding areas of when we look at this text, to the reality of how life really is now. All right, just let me restate that. Right, all of this that I'm kind of setting a foundation here, it leads us to the very important contextual lens we need to look at what was really going on in the reality of life when Paul was writing, right? And compare this to what life is really like today. Right, just give me an, I'll give you another quick example of this. Today in American Western culture, all right, our culture is highly individualistic. And when we read, and we tend to read scripture this way, right, we ask questions such as, what is God saying to me? as an individual. What does this mean to me? Right? We use the phrase, my personal relationship with Jesus. But friends, in the first century, culture was highly communal. And the original hearers and reading, readers of Scripture would read and hear what God was saying to them as integral parts of a community. And when we fail to take this into account, which we often do, we can significantly miss Paul's emphasis and meaning in his writings. So, in regards to what life was really like in the time and place that Paul wrote, this brings us, and this is really going to become important in our, in our text today as we look at it, this brings us to a key concept. Okay, track with me here. Friends, Paul's purpose in his writing was not to change the existing social context but rather revealed the power of faith in Christ in the midst of current reality, in the midst of people's lives as they actually were. In just a minute, Paul's going to reference the example of slaves and masters. Okay? And many people over the years have criticized the New Testament, particularly Paul, for failing to outright condemn the practice of slavery. Now, this is actually very unfair because the New Testament shouts out the message of social justice throughout its pages. But it is true that Paul doesn't seek, Paul is not actively writing and working to overturn slavery in his writing. Okay, well, why? My friends, because that wasn't Paul's prime concern. You see, in the first century Middle East, slavery was a millennia-old institution absolutely entrenched in the very DNA of society. I mean, Paul knew that slavery was not going away anytime soon, regardless of what he would have said. So, rather than, excuse me, rather than describing how Christians should live in some hypothetical idealistic future that still doesn't exist in some parts of the world, Paul is proclaiming the power and the hope of faith in Christ right then in the midst of life as it really was. Likewise, when we seek to understand Scripture, specifically Scripture focused on ethical teaching and social relationships, we, could, we should consider the historical con context and hear God's principles that speak into our lives right now in the midst of life as it really is. So, with that, let's read our text. We're going to see three of the primary social relationships here in society 
And for each of them, we're going to ask, what is the context and what is the principle that God would have us here today? All right, so 1 Corinthians, we're in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 3, down near the end of the chapter. And Paul says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. And whatever you do, work at, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as your reward, for it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. And masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay. Again, we see here these three big social dynamics in that time, um, and it correlates to us today, but in a different context. And these are the dynamics between wives and husbands, children and parents, and slaves and masters. Okay, so let's just take a little deeper look into this, starting right there at the top with the relationships of husbands and wives. And Paul says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay, um, for it's a context. In this time, this was a highly patriarchal society. We may think our society is patriarchal, and to some extent it still is. But back then, right, some 2,000 years ago, first century um, Roman society was highly, highly patriarchal. And in most marriages, women were just considered the property of their husbands. Women had very little, if any, rights, and it was common for the marriage relationship to be far more beneficial for the man than for the woman, right? Centered on the rights of the man, not the woman. As a result, the wife could easily resent or fear her husband with manipulation and distrust being very, very common. Likewise, it was common for husbands to control, to devalue, and treat their wives with disrespect. This was just the cultural norm. And friends, over the centuries, this passage and the parallel passages in Ephesians and 1 Peter, they have been distorted to assert that, well, it must be God's plan for men to just totally control the household and for wives to have no say in anything. Right? And for wives to be bound before God to always obey their husbands regardless of the situation. Now, when we look at it this way, again, it's a distortion, but this easily sets the stage for manipulation, control, and even abuse on the part of men to their wives. And beyond that, a broader devaluation of women that unfortunately has existed and still exists in parts of Christian culture. But in great contrast, we see here the simple but powerful principle of a relationship that is not centered on the man, but centered in Christ, right? where the wife respects and trusts her husband because she knows that her husband loves her, respects her, values her, 
and supports her. In Ephesians, Paul begins this parallel teaching by calling both husbands and wives to equally submit to each other because of their shared devotion to Christ. You know, when I think of my own marriage, um, in my marriage with Lisa, I take some leadership in some areas. Lisa takes leadership in other areas. And yet our goal is to be of one heart and mind in the decisions of our marriage as we both are yielded to Christ as the center of our marriage, as the center of our lives. We have different roles. Those roles change sometimes. And these roles may vary in different marriages. But to all Christian households, Paul calls husbands and wives to look first to Christ and for the nature of Christ to be the foundation of how they relate to each other. Now, I totally realize much more could be said. There are books, sermon series, conferences that you can go to on that topic. But we got to move on right now to the next dynamic Paul addresses of parents and children, where he says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Okay, the context. Friends, similar to the, the dynamic with women, in the first century Roman world, children were generally not valued, at least the way we think of our children today. Neglect and abuse was not uncommon, especially for female children. Children were expected to be completely subservient to their fathers, but with little to no moral expectation on the parts of the fathers. Thus, like the passage for husbands and wives, it would be a gross distortion to say that Paul was calling children to obey their parents even when such obedience would lead the children into situations of, that would be immoral or harmful to themselves or someone else, right? or to have to endure neglect and abuse of themselves. Rather, Paul gives us, again, a powerful principle. And it is where children would have a heartfelt and sincere desire to be obedient to their parents because they know that their parents love them, protect them, and genuinely are always working toward their best interests. You know, in Paul's time, the balance skewed toward the neglect of the children. But in our time, the balance can often skew to the exaltation of children where no sense of respect, respectful obedience is taught or expected and practiced. And this not only leads to unhealthy family dynamics, but to morally and emotionally unhealthy children who not only don't learn respect and restraint, but experience the permissiveness of their parents as actually a form of emotional neglect. And again, in contrast, Paul not only calls children to share, not, Paul not only calls children to sincere and respectful obedience, but he calls parents to godly leadership, not embittering or devaluing their children, either through harsh control or passive moral and emotional neglect. And for both parents and children, as with husbands and wives, the greatest principle is that Christ is the center of the family dynamic. As children experience the love, the nature, and character of Christ from their parents, the parents who themselves are living in loving and trusting obedience to God. Okay, again, so much more that could be said there. But now we move on to where things in this text get really interesting as Paul engages the societal relationship between slaves and masters. 
And friends, as I said just a minute ago, in the first century Middle East, slavery was a millennia-old institution absolutely entrenched in the very DNA of society. And in the midst of this reality, Paul proclaims the power and hope of faith in Christ, a hope that was not contingent on some radical change in the slave circumstance, but based upon their experience and expression of their freedom in Christ, even if they had little freedom in their social context. So let's just think about that context for a minute. Fritz, you know, sometimes you'll hear people try to water down the institution of slavery that Paul was writing into, right, equating it more to a boss and employee relationship in our world today. And that is where we take it today. But back then, there may have been instances of, right, of slavery being this more like egalitarian social context that was, you know, more like, you know, employers and employees. But that really is a vast whitewashing of the reality that was going on then, and it dilutes the power of the message to us today. It is true that slavery in the ancient world was not primarily defined by race and ethnicity in the way we may think of in our more recent past. But because anyone of any race or culture at that time could have been a slave, and there were many ways that people became slaves. But that said, the reality is that slavery, then, as in our own relatively recent past, it was a brutal and unjust institution. Slaves had zero rights. They were property. They had no ability to control their lives or the lives of their family. The experience of slavery was very often absolutely dehumanizing. Sexual abuse of female slaves was commonplace and accepted. And while some slaves may have done work of higher social prestige, the vast majority of slaves worked in roles that we would consider to be menial, basic labor that was seen as below the status of a free person. Right? Moreover, slavery was so entrenched in society that it was just the common reality for even new believers to be slave owners when they became believers if they were not slaves themselves. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we see Paul encouraging slaves to gain their freedom if it was possible for them to do so. But he also recognized that for most slaves in his time, this would never happen. And it is into this reality that Paul writes with both pragmatism and with power. And so the principle that we see is that as people whose identity and hope are in Christ, regardless of the nature of work or our circumstance, there is significance and freedom when we remember who it is that we really serve. Verse 22 and 23, Paul says, So slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. <clears throat> Again, friends, we need to see the principle here. Paul calls us to be people who have hearts, then and now, to be people who have hearts that desire to serve, hearts of integrity and honor in our work not because of the nature of our work and not even because we are paid well or treated fairly, but because this integrity and honor in our work is a reflection of who we are in Christ. 
the scripture goes on and says, so whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And this is the powerful concept, my friends, of, you may have heard this before, but the idea of an audience of one, the life-giving perspective that our work, our efforts, our honesty, and our integrity is actually a, just this super important form of worship to God. And friends, through this lens, there is no such thing as insignificant work. And when this is our heart, everything we do takes on divine meaning and purpose. Even the slave whose circumstance of life could so easily be debasing and devaluing in Christ and before God, they may find value, pride, significance, meaning, and hope in their daily lives. All right, moving on just with this, parallel with this, the, the, the principle, the perspective that our reward is our inheritance in Christ. Verse 24, Paul says, Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, because it is the Lord Christ you are serving. This is where we understand that our sense of self-worth is not based on the reward or praise of other people, be it through our paycheck or great job reviews, although these are wonderful, right? We can work toward these. But ultimately, our reward is the inheritance of our new life in Christ that is equally promised to all believers. And then Paul says, this is interesting, so anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. My friends, this is the hope that we don't have to be taken out, right? Just discouraged by injustice. Right, let's think of a few scenarios together. And these would be common reality for slaves back then, and, and as, as they could be for us today if we are trapped in toxic or unhealthy work environments, right? Or I could say even family environments. Right. In one of these scenarios, let's say it's where a person would do shoddy work, just enough to get by, but then getting away with it by putting on a good show, right? currying favor when the boss is present. And for the person who is actually working with integrity, this can be frustrating and discouraging. Another scenario is, is where how hard you work just doesn't matter because there is favoritism shown to those who the boss likes, the master likes, be it because maybe they're family, they're a friend, or whatever the situation may be. And again, this is profoundly unjust and a discouraging experience, but it is also all too common. And in the midst of this, Paul gives the message of hope that when our work from our heart is to the Lord, there is no favoritism with God. For in Christ, all of us, Men, women, slaves, free, from the day laborers to the company owner, we all are equally valued by God. Likewise, we have the relief and freedom of being able to surrender our hunger for justice to God, for everyone will stand before God to give an account for our actions. Now, my friends, hear me. This doesn't mean that we don't work toward justice in our lives now. Of course we do. We see this call throughout Scripture. But rather, this is the great gift of inner freedom that right now, even when we may be caught in situations that are unjust, unfair, and frustrating, right? 
our liberty, our freedom is before God. And we can surrender that need for fairness and justice to God, even while we do work for it in our lives. Because, friends, we have the resource of hope not to be taken out by the reality of injustice in our life circumstances. And I probably could have stated that clearer and more eloquently, but it is a powerful principle. But lastly, Paul turns the focus now to those who are masters, to people who are in places of power and authority. And he gives a strong reminder saying, remember, we all have a master. Masters, this is chapter 4, verse 1 now. He says, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Friends, one last time, think of the principle here. This isn't a picture of the Christian master grudgingly being fair because he feared God's punishment. No, it is a picture of a slave owner, a master, a business owner, right? any person in a place of power and authority having their hearts transformed by their master, right? by the work of Christ, the Holy Spirit in them, by God, so that it is God's nature and character that directs and defines how they honor, how they respect, how they act justly with those who work for them, for those who have been entrusted to their care. Okay, for just a few big takeaways here. In a society based on the pride of those in power, Paul calls believers to live lives of humility before God. In a world filled with injustice and exploitation, as believers, we are called to relationships of mutual respect, trust, and sacrificial love. And my friends, in the midst of life as it really is, right now, in times when our life experience may feel insignificant and unfair, God invites us into the significance and the liberating freedom where everything we do is an act of divine purpose because it's an act of worship to God. And where our greatest heart desire is not just to be able to do whatever we want to do, whenever we want to do it, wherever we want to do it, with whomever we want to do it, but our greatest desire is the sake of the gospel, to bring glory and honor to God for our lives in whatever our circumstance may be and how we work, how we, how, we, right, how we live in the relationships with our parents, our children, and our spouses to bring glory to God by revealing His goodness in the authenticity, um, just in the, in the reality of God changing who we are and this being expressed in how we live. So, some thoughts to consider in a very, very important passage, one that's easy to take out of context, one that's easy to distort, but that speaks powerfully into our lives today. So, with all that said, friends, thank you so much for tracking with me today. Um, I continue to ask, again, if you, if, if you follow, follow along with me, if you're a part of our church, maybe when you come into town, um, you may know that I've gone through a big transition in my life from being the full-time local pastor of Trinity. This was my first week in my new role. I'm a chaplain in our local hospital network. I've jumped into that, drinking as a fire hose, as they say, as I learned so much moving into this new role. But it really is my joy to continue 
to be the leader um, of our Beaver Creek service here in the Bell Valley and to continue to bring these messages to you. So thank you. Uh, thank you for your friendships. Thank you for your prayer. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I'll see you again right here next Sunday.